Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, we have some news about Sense8, Okja's box office performance in South Korea, a Polish film festival goes into distribution of Asian films, Taiwan has its first game-to-film adaptation, HMV possibly expanding film production in Taiwan, and our films this week, Okja and Transformers The Last Night. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida. Well, actually not. I'm sitting in South Carolina right now. And coming to us from his news desk on a plane bound for Taipei is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. How's it going, everyone? How are you doing, sir? You're getting ready for a big trip, right? Yeah, kind of. It's not a big trip. I mean, the trip to Taipei from Hong Kong is never really a big trip. Just a five-day um, trip to Taipei for the film festival, and it seems like I'll be doing a lot of work there because I just picked up quite a few freelance projects. So, as I said on uh, the Asian and Cinema um, website or Facebook page today, it's going to be a bit of a hiatus while I try to juggle all these projects. Uh should be about a week or so, but uh, afterwards, uh, hopefully, things will go back to normal. No, very good, very good. I hope you have a smooth and safe flight when that occurs. Um, I myself also on a little bit of a trip, a sort of summer vacation with the family. We are here in uh, South Carolina with relatives uh, just kind of waiting for the 4th of July holiday. We are kind of in, in between uh, respective dates, right? Because you've just had the July 1st big, what is it, 20-year brouhaha over there in Hong Kong. Yeah, 20-year anniversary of uh, the handover uh, of Hong Kong to China, of Chinese sovereignty. But happy July 4th. Oh, yes. I totally forgot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're doing the uh, Independence Day thing here. And uh, after that, we'll be headed back down to South Florida. Everything went fairly smoothly, I guess, over there because you had the bigwig come through, right, uh, Mr. Xi Jinping himself? Well, he got to see Hong Kong, but not much Hong Kong people because, you know, whenever he went, the police would shut off the roads and it was a huge inconvenience to, to people because so many roads were shut down whenever he whenever he left uh, the hotel. Um, so there are a lot of complaints about that. Um, you know, and of course, he left right before the march started that afternoon. So uh, he didn't even get to see uh, this really the core value of Hong Kong, which is, you know, expression of uh, of free speech. Yeah. And he probably doesn't want to see any of that anyway, right? So it is what it is. Um, but yeah, wherever you are, whether you're in Hong Kong or whether you are in the States or elsewhere, we hope you're having a smooth and enjoyable summer so far. And we're going to get into our film reviews this week. We're kind of changing things up because this week I'll be hopping onto the e-screened uh, bandwagon to talk about our e-screen film because I was not able to get out and see the West Screen film for this week. And uh, unfortunately, all of that burden is going to fall to Mr. Ma. So we'll be getting to that in just a little bit. But let me throw the talking stick back over to him with this week's news. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Paul. I'm. I have to watch Transformers while you get to. Uh, anyway, well, we'll get to that later. Okay, here at the news. Here at the news desk. Uh, yeah, a couple of news items. Uh, well, first of all, you know, we've been <laughs> continuing our discussion about Netflix. Guess what Netflix has done? Uh, yes, they have. Um, even after they set out a statement saying there is no more Sense Eight, they finally, I guess, heard the uh, the voice of uh, the supporters, meaning people who go to every Netflix YouTube video and ask for Sense Eight to come back. 
yeah, it's kind of annoying. Sorry. I know you guys are happy, but I'm sorry. It's really annoying when I scroll in the comments and the first thing is about Sense8. But anyway, uh, yeah, the show, um, because apparently the second season, I haven't watched the second season yet. I'm still on the first season, but apparently second season ends on a cliffhanger. So a lot of people were pissed off that the story never got resolved. Um, but it seems like Netflix will now bring it back for a brief two-hour finale. So the, I guess it's similar to the Christmas special that the show got in between the seasons. And um, yeah, people will get their closure uh, for the story. Which I think is great. It's something that Netflix kind of got a little bit of a reputation for doing, right? I mean, they took, they, they've they been buying up uh, network series on other networks and kind of rescuing them in an 11th hour sort of rescue. They did that for a show I watched called Longmire, which got canceled. I forget, uh, was it AMC or, or A&E, I think, was the network they were on, and, and they canceled it with a cliffhanger. And then we got word that Netflix uh, had bought them and was going to, you know, keep the series going. And they've gone for two or three seasons now with that. So I think it's great that they're able to do that in-house now, right? <laughs> it's like they <laughs> they hear uh, a cancellation that's not so popular and they decide to, you know, come in and at least give out a, a closing film, which normally um, the traditional networks and even cable networks are not uh, – are not uh, – keen on doing, I guess, because of the sort of the financial implications of that. So I'm very happy with this news. I was happy to, to read about it, and I, I look forward to it. And like you, I haven't started the second season yet. And, you know, I was talking with some folks about this because we were thinking, you know, we had mentioned last time about thinking about how Netflix looks at this in terms of cost versus ratings versus buzz and all of that. And it's not that I don't want to watch uh, Sense8 at all because I really enjoy it. It's I've trying to find a proper block of time because with a show like that that's so deep and so heavy um, I would say it's like I don't want to watch one episode at a time I need to watch a bunch of it at a time and you know so sometimes I put shows like that off until I can get a huge block of time to kind of you know go through them and that may be something that uh, whatever algorithms they're using to look at you know, how how popular a show is or how the show is doing in terms of reception, it you know, it's kind of not taking that into account because you have this sort of on-demand mode and people might be looking and saying, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to breeze through something like Terrace House because that's light and easy and I can do it, you know, piecemeal and, and I don't really need to think too much, whereas something like that, I really need to set aside some chunks of time and, and be in the proper mindset for it. Yeah, um, it's, well, I need to actually just watch it one episode at a time, but I'm getting into a point where in season one where it's like, okay, these people finally get, it was a pretty exciting point. Um, it's a point where they start actually banding together. Um, and I was like, I gotta watch this. And now that I know there's going to be ending that I know that, you know, it's gonna, there will be a finishing point if I keep binge watching it, maybe I'll, I will keep picking it back up. Um, and it's a good show. It's a good show, but I can see it is insanely expensive and insanely complicated to produce. If you look at the uh, read the Wikipedia about the complicated production process, essentially right. they have to send multiple directors to multiple locations and shoot simultaneously. So essentially, the director credit at the end of each episode is BS because that one one each one director is in charge of one territory. So it's like they're shooting all the episodes simultaneously. It's really it's really an amazing production and. And to to sustain that, um, it's an incredibly expensive uh, um, project. So, um, but still, you know, it's 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 good that we even have two seasons of the show because again, it takes a very open. It's a very groundbreaking show. It takes a um, it has transgender characters and, and homosexual characters, and it's a sci-fi show. And it kind of un, undo, undo all those things about you know sci-fi show being for male geeks. Uh, it is it's this this film is very inclusive uh, of all kinds of characters, right. and it's a very important show I think for for American television. All right, so there you have it. Uh, if you are happy that this is coming back, uh, you know, drop us a line. Let us know your thoughts. All right, next piece of news is we're, we are talking about Netflix already. Okja, the film we're talking about later, um, did get a theatrical release in the U.S., the U.K., and, of course, South Korea. Uh, the only place that uh, it has box office figures being reported is South Korea because they have a government-backed, centralized 
uh, reporting system, so it's very easy to access that kind of data. Um, it, the film opened uh, on about 100 screens um, in about 70-something cinemas uh, across Korea because uh, the three major cinema chains, which take up 93% of all screens in Korea, refused to show it uh, because of this whole day-and-date deal. But yet it did okay. I mean, it actually had the highest per screen average in the top 10. Um, it had the highest per... Uh, or the highest emissions per screening average in the top 10, I think about 74, which if you think about a normal multiplex can only fit about 150 or less people, you know, it's a, it's a really good average. Um, the film made about uh, six or 7,000 US dollars per screen, which usually signals to a solid, but it's not a really spectacular opening. Um, but still, it's very respectable for a film that only had a hundred screen release, uh, very strong attendance numbers. Um, so, so it's all right. I think I think um, it seems like it might stay around for a little bit. I'm not, uh, of course, Nef- uh, Netflix is not releasing box office numbers in the U.S. and they don't uh, release um, uh, viewing numbers. So. I have no idea how how the reception is elsewhere, but of course there are a lot of news stories about it already since it um, since it appeared on Netflix. You know, just the way you know pop culture goes, and feedback has been very good. So um, I hope it does well in South Korea. That proves that at the end of the day, it's these cinemas that are losing out on potential audiences, and uh, maybe they'll change their mind next time. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's interesting that. Um because I, I think that there was not an expectation that this was going to necessarily do well cinematically. So it'd be interesting to see how this affects things going forward with releases that are going to be, you know, streamed and released cinematically going forward. Yeah, and of course, it's worth reminding people that South Korea actually has one of the shortest uh, c- cinema to um, uh, streaming, not stream, but, you know, um, on-demand, internet-on-demand video window in the world only about three weeks for a local film to show up on those on-demand services and on-demand doesn't mean it means you know paid per rental kind of thing right not sort of like the itunes model um so it was like what was the fight for you guys just wanted your three weeks like listen it's a bong Joon ho film people are going to show up anyway like look at all these you know the, the, it's racking up pretty good per screen numbers and now all these independent cinemas um uh, get you know get packed screenings while you guys have uh, have a flop. It, so two other Korean films opened this past weekend. One is called Anarchist from Colony. Um, it's about uh, it's a biographical film about um, a uh, an ar- anarchist uh, during the colonial era that did really well. Um, but the other film is called Rio. It's a crime thriller. Uh, it was supposed to be big because it stars Kim Soo Hoon from um, My Love from the Stars, the the male star. But that movie flopped. So. Um, but that film is backed. So one film is backed by Megabox. Anarchist from Colony is backed by cinema chain Megabox. And uh, Rio is backed by CGV, which is uh, CJ Entertainment. Or CG, CJ Entertainment, which owns CGV. So, of course, you, you suddenly think, huh, no wonder they decide to push Okja out. So that these two cinema chains can promote their own films. Weird. And, of course, Transformers is released by Latte locally in Korea. Latte the owner, the operator of the country's second biggest cinema operator. So the top three films are all backed by local cinema operators, while the fourth place film is only playing independent cinema, which is a very sort of um, uh, interesting point, I guess, to make if you're sort of observing uh, the way that South Korean distribution um, works. It's almost you got these monopoly, you know, top ruling the box office, while the film that gets into independent cinema gets sort of shut, shoved aside. Um, yeah, it's just an interesting observation. But uh, yeah, I hope the film continues to do well because uh, the, the local distributor said that the the release is essentially unlimited, which means it will last as long as there is audience demand. So I hope that it stays long enough. Hmm. All right. Speaking of distribution, you've got some news for us about Poland's Five Flavors Festival. Yes, uh, Five Flavors Festival is a is a film festival based in Warsaw. Um, it's the only Asian cinema showcase, annual Asian cinema showcase in Poland, and they've been doing this I think for about ten years now. Um, uh, and so they do some pretty interesting work. Um, but uh, now they decide to go into distribution. Um, they will be bringing more sort of obscure Asian Asian films to Poland, which is very rare already because Asian films don't get a lot of distribution in Poland. Um, the first film is uh, the Filipino film, Apocalypse Child, which won the top award 
at last year's festival. The film, I think, comes out in October. And then they also acquired two more films, um, uh, Honey Giver Among the Dogs uh, from uh, Bhutan, I think, and also Morlina, The Murder in Four Acts, an uh, Indonesian film which played in uh, Cannes' um, director's fortnight section this year and they'll be releasing those two films before early spring 2018 it's always good that we have another distributor of asian cinema out there and of course um in poland it's great that it's the it happens to be uh the the asian film showcase you know distributing these very obscure films because you know otherwise these especially these southeast asian films they don't get a lot of exposure um that all outside their their native countries uh even asian countries don't really show much Asia, uh, southeast asian films so um best of luck to them and uh i hope the the films do do well all right very good next bit of news you've got some news about a taiwan game adaptation yes can you believe that taiwan has never made a game adaptation for film um, apparently, it's finally happening. Uh, the game is called Detention. The film is available. Actually, the game is available worldwide. Um, it's available on Steam, and um, it's been rated pretty highly this year by, uh, according to the scores on Metacritic. It's a horror game that's uh, set uh, during the White Terror era uh, in the '60s in Taiwan. It's about two school kids who wander around a haunted school, running around, run, running away from a monster. Um, the film is being adapted uh, this year. The, the game has been a hit. It's kind of like one of those things where Taiwan finally gets a game that can be played, you know, that is recognized uh, around the world. So it's pretty big deal in, in the game circle. Um, the film is being produced by Li Dae, and uh, who is an actress and, of course, uh, a, a pretty powerful producer in Taiwan these days. Um, and it's being directed by uh, a director whose background is in short film and also machinima videos. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with those, t- uh, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, Machinima Videos. This guy is, uh, had a group that makes Machinima Videos, and also um, uh, he directed a couple of award-winning short films. Uh, so it's a pretty good background. Uh, the writer is uh, uh, the writer of the Tagalong, uh, which is a horror series um, that's getting a sequel this year in Taiwan. So um, it's, it's a pretty solid idea and pretty solid cast. And, of course, Knowing the idea is set in the White Terror era, and era, and of course with a monster, it's not really co-production. It's definitely a Taiwan production. The film is going to cost 100 million Taiwan dollars, which is about 25 million Hong Kong dollars, which is about three four million dollars US. Big enough for Taiwan. Sounds small, but actually pretty big for Taiwan already. And again, this is Taiwan's very first game to film adaptation. So um, I'm, I'm excited about this. Yeah, it looks interesting. It's uh, very reminiscent as I look at some of the uh, still images from the game of um, some Japanese-style like horror games for the whole PlayStation and PlayStation 2 that I used to play. Yeah, and maybe there's a bit of a Silent Hill feel to it all. You know, haunted school and hidden monster, and of course it deals with uh, Taiwan culture and like superstitions and, th- and things like that. It's a very local topic very local subject and it just seems like uh it's very ripe for film adaptation so uh let's see how this turns out and ending with another taiwan news uh hmv hong kong okay this bit is a bit complicated so you know the company china 3d entertainment these are the people who produced um sex and zen 3d and um uh do west and quite a few so few local films they their 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 um parent company uh bought the Hong Kong branch of HMV last year, so now it's being called. So it's been called. Uh, I think it's called HMV China Digital Group or HMV Hong Kong Digital Group or something. But anyway, these guys are now in film production with China 3D. They're also in talent management, and uh, they, of course they run HMV. Of course, they run a couple of cinemas in 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 China. But now they've um, they might be expanded to Taiwan. They bought a company called Hualien. Uh, this is the company that was behind the hit romantic comedy Our Times. Um, and they own the rights to it because the other company uh, uh, is already shut- shuttered. So now they own the rights. And apparently, HMV is buying this company uh, for the rights to produce the sequel to Our Times and also the TV adaptation to Our Times. Now, that's the, one of their main goals. The, it, does it mean that 
this company, which already does co-productions, by the way, with China, are they also going to be entering film production in Taiwan? It's it's interesting because it's kind of reminiscent of, reminiscent of the 70s, I think, when uh, Hong Kong companies also produced uh, films in Taiwan. And uh, I think maybe vice versa, Taiwan companies producing films in Hong Kong, maybe. But um, yeah, it's interesting how Taiwan is still a viable, possibly a viable place for Hong Kong companies to to to, to invest in. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether this company is really diversifying, you know, trying to produce local Taiwan films, you know, without being constrained by this whole co-production machine. Um, but yeah, not not no real plan has been announced yet, except for the fact that they want to be in on uh, our times too. Um, so we'll keep a close eye on this. All right, and it sounds like there'll be some exciting projects possibly coming for this. Uh, especially for fans of Taiwan cinema. Okay, let's take a short musical break, and we'll be back with our e-screen review for this week, Okja. And welcome back. For our e-screen review this week, uh, we debated whether this was really an e-screen film or a west-screen film, but we've been talking about it for a while now, so we decided to stick it here in the uh, east-screen slot. And that is the film Okja, coming from director Bon Joon-ho, with a cast that includes Tilda Swinton, Paul Dano, um, Steve Yoon, amongst uh, others, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Giancarlo Esposito, and uh, some new talent, too, from Korea in the form of the actress playing the young girl, Misha. So the story itself, in an attempt to improve its public image, the Mirando Corporation holds a global competition to raise a breed of super pig. One such super pig named Okja is raised in the mountains of South Korea by a young girl, Misha, and her grandfather. But when Mirando comes to collect Okja, Misha takes it upon herself to rescue her. But in doing so, she gets swept up in a fight between animal rights group and Mirando itself. So uh, this is a pretty interesting film, to say the least. I mean, you've got quite a few contemporary ideas being pitched around with regard to uh, things like genetic modification, you know, animal hybridization, um, the need to feed people. And at the same time, you've got some of the aesthetic sensibilities of the director himself. So people, you know, may remember some of the work he's done on films like The Host or Snowpiercer, and, and you get elements of that coming through in some ways. Um, so it's this kind of very interesting uh, menagerie of visuals and, and ideas at times. And it's got really solid casting, I think, but at times the characters themselves feel a bit over-the-top, feel a bit cartoonish. And in some ways I think that may take away a little bit from... Um, some of some of the narrative because it seems like they're pushing some things into overdrive for the sake of being quirky and I don't want to say they're like pushing this to be a you know a cult film or anything but it, 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 in, in some places it felt like they were really trying too high too hard to be that kind to strive for that kind of weirdness that makes some films stand out um, but as an effects film the effects are really good overall I think the creature itself of Okja felt very real. Um, Okja is a kind of, I mean, they re never really get into the actual genetics of the creature, but it kind of resembles a cross between a hippo, a pig, and a dog in some ways. I did think that as I was watching it, um, one scene felt a little bit out of place. There's a scene where they're like running on the street and it's daylight and that one sequence felt like it didn't hold up that well, but most of the rest of the sequences that had uh, the Okja creature or other creatures on screen with humans um, felt really, really good, and especially some of the close-up stuff, um, especially when you've got the, the young actress playing Misha, 
where she's like right next to Oakjaw and they're doing a close-up and you'll see sometimes like the creature's eye and ear and you'll see her face you know it's it's like I'm thinking to myself are they is this a prosthetic effect is it all CG I mean um, it, it, it looks really good I would say the thing with these creatures too is the Oakjaw creature is uh, intelligent these super pigs have an intelligence to them that the director hints at in a few, and, and openly shows in a few places. I mean, the level of intelligence is hard to say. There's one thing that the character does a couple times on the screen that the audience never really gets to, you, you never really get the full effect of it. So the, the director's like holding something back and then like the very end, there's a reversal of this, which makes it even more interesting. Um, and so there's there's the idea of intelligence here, but I don't think it gets played out to its full effect. Um, I w I'm very much reminded of a sequence in the uh, book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, in the restaurant at the end of the universe section, if you're familiar with that, um, either the book or the British TV series. And there's a scene where the crew gets confronted by this thing called an, an Amiglian Major Cow. And it's basically a cow that has been bred to want to be eaten, right? Uh, they decided to, the, the, the joke is that Douglas Adams here has written, this, this creature was, was, was genetically modified and bred to be something that's sentient, it can talk to you, and it can tell you, yes, please eat me, I want you to eat me. And then the reactions that the crew has, especially, you know, the Arthur Dent human character has, in being confronted by this thing that's basically sentient and telling him to eat him. Um, so in some ways there's this idea here that these super pigs are smart and much smarter than even the most domesticated animals like dogs and uh, you know some people have potbelly pigs and things at home that are very smart but these things sort of go beyond that. So I think there's there's more to that that could have been maybe pushed forward and they, they didn't really go that far. Um, there's some really good cinematography throughout, some really nice visuals. Um, the film does kind of resolve itself in a somewhat commonsensical way. And part of me was saying at certain points earlier, before they get to that point, I'm kind of like, well, why don't you just do this? <laughs> and then they actually do that. And I was just thinking, well, they could have done that earlier, but I guess we don't have a film then, right? Um, and it's really kind of positioning different views on corporate culture, on the nature of PR, the nature of public view, and uh, ideas about social commentary, especially when it comes to food. But uh, some, some aspects of this, again, get back to ideas they touched on in Snowpiercer um, with about you know, social status and, and the need to survive and things like that. Uh, but it all still feels a little bit comic book-esque here, again, especially with the characters of Jake Gyllenhaal and Tilda Swinton. They just feel a little bit over the top. And part of me felt like this could have gone for a slightly more serious tone, but of course then it's not going to be um, a film from the director that we know here, I think. Um, the the group that she ends up encountering, this group called the Animal Liberation Front, they call themselves ALF. They are kind of given the sympathetic aspect. It's not really a... I was kind of expecting this to be a breakdown between showing the evil sides of, you know, both corporate culture and sort of eco-terrorism slash, you know, animal rights culture, but not really. I mean, the, the, the ALF group kind of gets off with a pass, I would say, um, in, in the way that they're presented almost as heroes in some ways. Um, but it is nice to see Steve Yun here, especially doing some bilingual acting, I would say, um, you know, for fans who remember him as Glenn on The Walking Dead. Um, it's nice to see him being able to stretch a little bit and play a character who's a bit different. Uh, Jake gets to play a variation of sort of a crocodile hunter character, you know, these sort of Animal Planet TV style guys who go out and and interact with nature, um, and but he kind of feels like he's throwing in a little bit of Richard Simmons and a bit of Bill Nye into the mix, um, and his character too. I think him and Tilda Swinton, as I said, are just a little bit perhaps too over the top. Um, but you've got other actors here, as I mentioned, um, 
Giancarlo Esposito from Breaking Bad is here in kind of a supporting role, and it's good to see him on the screen. I just I feel like there's a darker and more serious film here had they gone with it, but they didn't. It's not Free Willy, um, even though it's kind of got some of those beats. So, I mean, it's not for kids. There's lots of F-bombs and things, and there's a, there's a bit of violence, and there's a scene that's definitely going to be disturbing. So, you know, don't show this to your kids thinking it's going to be you know, because it's got a child actress kind of in the lead, and it's about a big kind of cute-looking super pig. Um, it's not a Free Willy story, so it's not one I would show to kids necessarily unless they're much older. Um, and, and, and But at the same time, it's not super dark either. Um, I think that there was, you know, there, there's just room for improvement on that aspect, you know, getting a little bit more into the into the sort of nature of, food and and corporate stuff and uh i I just felt it could have gone a little bit further um and i'm going to throw it over to kevin to to hear his things and kevin as you're going through this you did mention i think over on twitter that there's a bilingual gag in the mix for people who know both korean and english right yeah um it's not really a spoiler because it's not really a plot point anything but there's a point where the steve yoon character says something to mija and um in the sub english subtitles it says uh, Mija, uh, if you should learn some English, it will really open your world or something like that, right? Remember? Yeah. Actually, what he was saying in Korean was, oh, by the way, my name is something something. And the name is like a really silly name, nonsensical name that like no Korean would have. You know, it's like this, <sighs> imagine like an old English name. Apparently, that's like the gag. And um, it's a play on translation. And mm-hmm. I guess that name, actually that line wouldn't have... Um, made sense if you if you just translate straight into English because it says oh my name is Kumbonsoon or something Kumbu, mm-hmm. yeah I mean Kumbonsoon but like but but apparently if you know Korean you know that's a really super silly name but that would never translate into English so they made it into that and I checked multiple so I even checked the English the Chinese subtitles I checked the even the audio description and they used that English translation mm-hmm. um, the wrong English translation or well blatantly intentionally wrong english translation so it's a very interesting sort of little point about uh translation when the film actually has a major translation is a major plot point in the film um and i guess a little fun little gag the reason why we i decided i said that we should choose it as, as east green because i really ultimately see this as, a, as, a, as an asian film it's made with a very <clears throat> asian sensibility um and, and it's, it's made like, it's like a two hour long film and i want to say at least the first hour of it is in korea Yes, the first half of it is set in Korea, Korea, and a lot of that is in Korean language, and a lot of the best jokes are actually in Korean. Um, there's a real great, and I love that the way that Bong Bong Joon Ho's script, and he, as he always does, he gives every, a little moment to every supporting character to the film, and that's not something you see every director um, can do in any country, right? And but. Bong Joon-ho has this great talent of giving a moment to every single character. Steve Yoon gets a moment, and, and Paul Dano, of course, he's like a major supporting. But, you know, even the Korean actors all get a moment. The driver of the truck, um, yeah. even get, he got, he, he's got one of the best lines in the film. Um, and we should and, say, and too, you, that speaking of him, uh, sorry to interrupt, um, one thing I forgot to mention, there is a kind of extensive end credit scene at the end of the credits, so you want to be sure to stay through, too. Yes, that's why when you watch Netflix, uh, when the end credits come up, it doesn't pop up. The little thing doesn't pop up because they want you to stay for the rest of the film. Be sure to watch that end credit scene. This it's not like some sequel tease. It's actually a nice little footnote to the to the story, by the way. So it's definitely you should definitely should watch it. Um, but yeah, it's it's ultimately a Korean film. It, you watch it as a Bong Joon Ho sensibility. Everyone's acting like they're in a Bong Joon Ho film. Everyone's overacting like they're in a Bong Joon Ho film. And if all the dialogues in Korean, you you you, you find nothing wrong with it, um, because that's how you know it's just the way it is. Um, so I found it incredibly fun. Um, I don't think it's among Bong's best works. I mean, he did The Host. He did Memories of Murder. He did Mother. I mean, that's like that's like a trifecta of you know, three of the best Korean films ever made, all right? Um, or some of the best even Asian films ever made. I mean, Memories of Murder. I was talking on Twitter with a, a filmmaker, a Taiwan filmmaker, Arvin Chan, and he said when he watched Mother, he came out and he just thought, what's the point? 
what's the point of directing anymore when someone can make a film like this? Like, what is the even why? Why even try? And I told him that Memories of Murder was that film for me. I watched it. And I thought, what's the point? You've been trying to make movies when you got this guy out there. Um, so, so you know, it's not in that kind of. It, it doesn't really have that kind of impact. But it is an incredibly fun film. I think it's. Be- I like it better than Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer really had a lot of bugs. I think um, essentially in the concept. Um, the execution was fine, but the concept itself had a lot, of, lot, of, lot of flaws, uh, a lot of little loopholes, um, and I didn't really find it that good. I mean, it's, it's a great idea, but I didn't find it that great of a film. And I think Okja really, really stretched his imagination in in working in an American film. Uh, but ultimately, he made it with Korean sensibility because he got to make half of it in in Korea, and he made it as a Korean film, and that's what it feels like um Tilda Swinton was doing a Korean thing you know Jake Gyllenhaal I think Jake Gyllenhaal was really terrible he, he's not like he doesn't ruin the film just because you know his character is not that huge but um if his character was any bigger it could have been like like Chris Tucker fifth element level kind of <laughs> destroying destruction right um but I, he was he was not great but you know annoying to a point but um you know, he's not in it that much, so it's fine. Paul Dano was cool, uh, better than I thought. Steve Yoon was actually funny. Um, by, by the way, is Korean also not... Have you watched all the... Have you watched some interviews he did in Korea for Okja? He actually doesn't speak Korean that... Like, he he ends up having to express himself a lot in English. Um, so he speaks... His, I think he speaks Korean, but it's, like, uh, worse than my Cantonese. Well, way worse than my Cantonese. Um so it's that kind of level but it was really cool to see and but even though he claims that he actually had to make his korean worse for the for his character in the film so that's interesting to watch um and he adds adds in a lot of comic relief um and and i think the pig is super cute and like you said it's really the cgi is really impressive um and ultimately, I kind of like that. I found it very interesting, though, the filmmaking sensibility, the mix of cultures, even in the filmmaking style. Um, the tone, the tone, the tonal shifts. Again, if it's a Korean film, I think people wouldn't have a problem with it. Um, I think in Korea, this would be sold as a family film. Um, because of violence, somehow it, it's violence is a bit more tolerant. They're a bit more tolerant of violence over there um, in their films. Uh, not that saying it's a totally kids film. I think even even in Korea, it might not be suitable for children. But um, it is essentially a kids film uh, or a teenage. It's a teenager film. Okay, it's it's okay for teenagers. Um, and I I don't think it's best film. Like I said, and I but I think it says some important things about. Corp, you know, uh, capitalism and and you know, eating meat and how we consume what we eat and and whether we are kind of hypocritical in our sort of this whole liberal whatever anti genetic modified food kind of uh, agenda um, and and about consumerism um, and you know it, it's it's a good film and it's a very enjoyable film and I would recommend it but. But I would say watch as a Korean film because if you try to watch as an American film, none of it makes any sense to you. Everyone's kind of overacting and wondering why this world is like this. You watch as a Korean film, it's you know, it, it, it just sort of imagine everyone speaking Korean and just read subtitles the whole way through. It's 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 a it's a fun. It's it, it's it's a pretty good Korean film. Again, it won't. It's not really a masterpiece, but I'm glad Bong Joon Ho made it. I couldn't wait for it. I was so excited for this film. Um, the uh, AOF uh, kind of comes off as idiots, but, you know, kind of bumbling, stupid heroes in the end. And I kind of like that, uh, even though mostly they're mostly portrayed as an eco-terrorist group. I think in the real world, it's kind of interesting how they're like the ones of honor here, even though they're super naive and they they do kind of stupid things. But they ultimately, you know, um, they're an important band. And, you know, it's a very Bong Joon-ho creation his version of AOF. And if you watch some of his films about, you know, bum- especially the bumbling police force in Memories Mur- of Murder, you kind of see that is sort of his thing. Um, I think The Host is still a better monster film, but uh, ok- it doesn't make Okja any worse. Um, it, it's immensely enjoyable, and I like it more than War Machine, even though I find I found good things about War Machine. I think Okja really is the best Netflix production this year. There's only been two, so whatever, right? Um uh, so yeah, it's it's recommended, but with an asterisk, treat it as an e-screen movie and uh, don't try to watch it from a Hollywood perspective because that's not what Bong Joon-ho does. And I'm glad that America gave Bong Joon-ho another chance to make something like this. It's a lot of fun. 
And welcome back. So for our West Screen Review this week, unfortunately I was not able to get out and do my diligent duty, uh, and that is to watch the latest in the Transformers franchise, Transformers The Last Night. And based on word of mouth that I've heard and uh, what I expect we're going to hear from Kevin in just a moment, maybe that's a good thing. So Kevin, take it away. Unfortunately, Paul. Unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately is on my side, buddy. <laughs> I'm the one with the unfortunate here. The mis the misfortune, I suppose. Uh yeah, um Transformers, the last night and hopefully the last movie. Uh is the fifth film in, in the Transformers franchise. Michael Bay is back and Mark Wahlberg got another twenty million out of it, I guess. Second time. Uh he plays again Kate Yeager. Kate Yeager. How many times does I say Kate Yeager before it sounds like a real name? And the answer is never. Like, ever. It would never sound like a real name. Okay. All right. I got to do a real review here. Okay. The story. Uh, if you remember what happened in the last film, nobody does, so it's okay. Optimus Prime has left uh, Earth for his home planet, Cybertron. Meanwhile, um, as Transformers continue to, to descend on Earth, the human race led by the TRF, which, by the way, was also a Hong Kong boy band. But actually, it means Transformer Reaction Force, which again makes apps of ugh, okay TRF Transformers Reaction Force uh, has decided to wage war against the Transformers. So the Transformers are now you know outlawed in the world, and they're being hunted one by one. After the events of the previous film, Kate Yeager still doesn't sound like a real name, played by Mark Wahlberg, has been hiding out in a junkyard uh, with the Autobots to protect them when uh, Optimus is corrupted by Sorceress Quintessa. Uh, who now sits, I guess, in the ruins of Cybertron, um, whose, and Quintessa's staff was taken by Cybertron Knight and given to Merlin in ancient times. So she has corrupted him in order to go back to Earth to recover the staff and lead the broken pieces of Cybertron back to overtake Earth. Before that happens, Cade must find the ancient staff, with the help of English Lord, played by Anthony Hopkins, and an Oxford professor, played by Laura Haddock, to stop the impending uh, invasion of Cybertron. Does that make one lick of sense to you? Yeah, no, it doesn't. It's a real mess. Um, and I've seen four trans. Well, now I've seen five Transformers movies, and I still say this one is a mess. Okay, and it's not like the plots of the other one were like streamlined, right? It's not like they were straightforward narrative, all right? This is messy. Um, apparently, all the piece that was struck in the previous film, then nothing. Because once you start, it's like, oh, wait, trans they take this five minute exposition, exposition to tell you that everything that happened in the last film happened in vain. You know, remember last film at the end, uh, Stanley Tucci was like, oh, I won't try and make our own Transformers anymore, and let's have peace between the robots and blah, blah, blah. None of that matter because now they're coming down like meteors um, and they're taking over Earth, and, you know, the humans are. are are going to try and hunt them down again. Um, so this whole film was missing a first act because it just sort of got wrapped up in this five-minute exposition. It's really more excuse to see robot fights, human versus robot fights, but the story, again, makes absolutely no sense. Um, why would the human... So at one point in the middle, um, the, 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 the TRF uh, uses the jail. So they, they found a Transformers jail. Yeah, they jailed the Decepticons, which made, again, I thought they were destroying the Decepticons. So why would you be putting them in jail? And how do you build a jail for Decepticons? Or how do you build a jail for Transformers in the first place? So anyway, at one point, they, the, the, the soldiers, the TRF, decides to use the Decepticons to hunt down Kate Yeager and the Autobots. Even... After we've seen four movies of Decepticons trying to destroy Earth and Autobots saving the world. It's like it's like we've never learned anything, which I guess is pretty accurate of today's America. Um, why would they use Decepticons like ever to do anything? It doesn't make any sense. How why how do giant how do Autobots hide in a vast open space? in a junkyard it's not like you, you can stack cars up to hide the autobots right um never mind um why does an english literature professor 
uh, dressed like a model with a low cut shirt. Okay, that's just Michael Bay. Yeah, Michael yeah, Bay all the thing. way. That's his thing. Yeah, that's his thing. Okay. As much as I hated the previous films, at least, you know, those films, the third film had a really impressive um, sequence, the Chicago sequence, um, which I begrudgingly admired because it's just such an insane piece of action set piece. It takes like an entire hour. It actually surpasses anything Michael Bay has done, and he still hasn't lived up to it ever since. Um, and and the Hong Kong battle, again, completely ridiculous. I mean, half of it wasn't even shot in Hong Kong. But, you know, there's that, that real ambition, the real spectacle, and the money is really is technically superior. And, you know, every dollar is on the screen. And yet, this one is the most expensive film in the franchise. This one ha- is set, the final fight is set on a CGI piece of metal. And then they go up to the cloud and fight in a CGI cave. There's no real city. There's no real people. There's no humans. It's just a bunch of robots. I don't know. I fell asleep party through the end. I have no idea how to defeat it. Whatever. Whatever. It. It. I woke up. It's like Optimus Prime is talking again. Okay, great. Blah blah. Whatever. But like, there's just there is no ambition in the action sequences. Even though Michael Bay is all like, we've got to make this the biggest film. We got to go over bang. He says it's the last film. This is last film in the franchise, which he's already said like three times. Um, and and yet. You know, you don't have anything of the Chicago sequence or the Hong Kong sequence. It's it's CGI landscape with CGI robots punching each other, CGI swords, and you know, it, it's it's it doesn't even excite people in that sense. Um, Optimus Prime being corrupted, right? Um, that really doesn't do anything since he's he's traveling in space for most of the film. He's actually missing for about two thirds of the film. It's no fate of the furious. You know, because, you know, that film also has uh, the, the, the corruption of a main character. And it's really saying something when your film is no fate of the furious. Right. Um, so I saw the IMAX 3D version because I know that um, the film was shot natively in IMAX 3D cameras. And it was really impressive to watch that full screen image. The 3D, not so much, but the IMAX image is quite impressive. Um, however... Not the entire film was shot in IMAX 3D. Um, apparently, 90% of it was, but Michael Bay decides to decided to use different lenses or different camera systems or at different certain the same sequence but different shots. So, for example, you see a shot of Mark Wahlberg's head in a regular sort of 2.0 or 2.35 to one aspect ratio, and then suddenly you cut back to Optimus Prime or the Autobots, and it's suddenly in IMAX full screen. Which is extremely weird and it's extremely irritating. It's okay to switch aspect ratio in between sequences. Like, okay, this scene, the next scene, you're back in normal sequences. I can get used to it because my eyes don't have to adjust so much. But when you're switching shots within the same sequence in different aspect ratios, it's not so intolerable on an IMAX screen because it's so big and you don't look up to the top and bottom so much. But when you're on a smaller multiplex screen, it's really irritating. I've heard that that, that whole aspect ratio switch happens even in the multiplex version and it's really really irritating it sounds um and you think michael bay you know has already ran out of ways to annoy audiences but now he found a new way to annoy people it's, it's almost like a it's, it's an achievement really it's an accomplishment it's a talent paul that's what i'm saying um it's really a complete assault of the sense logic intelligence well actually i take it back it's not assault it's a flat-out insult against sense and logic and intelligence um the way that that every time the transformers film looks serious it ends up being a barrage of these base style stupid ass gags uh so you know you you have this whole sequence where the the white soldiers you know led by king arthur they're being you know they're they're, they're dying in a battlefield and really serious and suddenly you got drunk merlin played by stanley tucci you know drinking and pissing and and trying to reason with the trans and trying to beg transformers that kind of dumbass bait you know michael bay style humor that i'm really tired of it worked in bad boys right it worked it's fine in armageddon you know but it's not cool when you have you know giant robots destroying earth and then you have to make some stupid gag about drinking chinese milk you know that's sorry that's the fourth film um but michael uh anthony hopkins playing a michael bay style badass you know, kind of an eccentric old man with some badassery. All right, I can accept that. You know, he got paid. You know, he's an 80-year-old man. He needs to be paid for something, you know. And then he got to do some Michael Bay-style humor. I guess he, I think he had fun doing it. It's not like Shakespeare, you know. It's not even, it's not even Oscar Wilde, you know. But it's all right. I, I, I think he enjoys it. Um, 
But seriously, just end this franchise already. I don't want to reboot. I don't want a new director. I don't want to see robots fighting humans and robot fighting robots anymore. I'm done. Five movies. How many years has it been? I don't remember. I think 2007, 10 years. It's okay. It's run its, it's, it's, run its course, I think. Um, I think f- when you have films that go, franchises that go as long as Friday the 13th or, you know, cheap slasher movies, it's ty- it's really time to stop, I think. Um, even Fate of Furious felt tired. Even um, what else came out? Um, what were the other like six quotes, Paul? That recently that you can think uh, of, like five quotes, <clears throat> six quotes, like five Fast films, six Furious films. Furious is the one that. Comes yeah, I'm done with that. Uh, yeah, I'm tired of that already. Transformers now in five. What else is in five? I think other films are in five. We've been getting a lot of those lately, I think. Now they let franchise run longer because international box office keep justifying the making of these films. Um, well, we already had two Spider-Man reboots, right, in the last, yeah. like, 15 years. Now a third one. Um, really, just just stop it already. Like, I think people have enough... And, and box office already tell you that people... It's not that they have enough Michael Bay. They don't care about Michael Bay. They don't even know who Michael Bay is, right? I mean, they're just tired of these films. They don't, they're tired of... They can go back and watch the older films, you know? Uh, I don't think they need any more of the new new ones, and I think it's already run out of ideas. So I think we're done. Just just kill it already. Just end it. Uh, and I'm not saying that for my own well-being. I'm just saying, you know, save yourself some money, guys. Like, just go back and make something cheaper. Come up with a new franchise already. You know, I'm I'm just tired of it. Yes, burn it. Burn it with fire. Um, I, You know, it's interesting. As I look at the Wikipedia page, uh, they do mention that, uh, and this film's not doing well from what I've read, and I think you were had an article out about yeah, uh, how it's not doing well in China. The China box office is not coming to its rescue as it has done for previous films. But there is mention of a 2018 Transformers Universe film called Bumblebee, which oh, is God. supposed to be a prequel starring Bumblebee. How that is going to work, I have no idea. Um, an untitled sixth Transformers film slated for 2019, and maybe if this bombs, that will be scrapped. But there is also mention of potential crossover films. They've been trying to do a Transformers G.I. Joe crossover film uh, for a long time now, and that's still on the table in in some aspects. Uh, let's see. 2015, John M. Chu confirmed his intentions to make a crossover film between Transformers, G.I. Joe, and Gem. So you have three Hasbro properties there that just, I don't know how that will work together. <laughs> um, and then let's see. January 2000. I hate Hollywood. 2017, DJ Caruso, who is set to direct the third G.I. Joe movie, stated that the script for the crossover movie is being written. Um, so how that's going to work, I mean, if this is all supposed to be an expanded universe kind of thing, does that mean that all this stuff that you've we've seen in, in the last film, you know, with Hong Kong, and now this film, is, is all of that supposed to be happening in the same universe as Cobra and uh, G.I. Joe? Um, that makes my head spin. So... Uh, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But, um, you know, could you just talk a little bit more about um, your, your thoughts on the China reaction to this? Because I've read a couple things and people I've read, you know, people are like walking out of the cinema and they just are not they're, they're not buying into this anymore. And I, I'm guessing it's Michael Bay or Transformers or Hollywood fatigue. Right. Well, actually, um what I wrote was that the film actually had a franchise best opening in China. It didn't do well. It, it had the lowest opening of the franchise most places, I think, everywhere else. But in China, it had the best. It didn't beat any record, but it actually had the best opening of the franchise. Hmm. Now, of course, it's it, it. the thing is in China, even in China, word of mouth matters. And actually, the, the Chinese audience actually like fairly like the first four films um, because it gets them what they want. It gets them spectacle. They don't. They care, but I think it aims so much. It aims so directly at the the fanboys uh, or the geeks, too, you know, who like robots, who just want to see robot, you know, fight uh, in big big set pieces. They kind of like the first four films. Uh, the Doban scores were always kind of big, even though I really hate the second film. That's the one with robot balls. Yeah, I'm not kidding. That one had robot balls, right? Uh, robot balls climbing over a pyramid, and they even like that one. And even then, they didn't. And even um, so, it did well on opening weekend, but it felt it, it, it took a really huge dive once it got past the first weekend. Um, but it's still doing a chunk, a sizable amount of money. Um, even it, I think it's just sort of not 
making as much money they had expected. Like, I think it's going to do worse than the fourth film, which is kind of ridiculous because, you know, you got way more screens now. And again, you had the best French uh, opening of the franchise. So it's a bit weird that, oh, wow, it's not even going to make more money than the fourth film. Um, so it's a bit of an alarm. And worst of all, um, they the Chinese audiences don't even like this film. So on Doban, which is the uh, kind of social media site that, you know, has a lot of users scoring films, I think it got like 4.9 or something. It's, it's got a really bad word of mouth. And even in China, bad word of mouth can kill a film now. It killed the Journey to the West film, uh, the Trey Hark one. It killed, you know, plenty of Hollywood films. Right now it's at 4.8, by the way. So it kills, a, you know, that kind of bad word of mouth can kill a lot of film, whereas actually now good word of mouth is helping to lift films. Um, so, for example, you got Dango, the Bollywood film, and now you got an indie film called Pastor the Soul, which is doing extremely well despite uh, cinemas not giving a showtime. But good word of mouth is really pushing this film. Whereas bad word of mouth is now Chinese audiences are being pickier. They are being more sophisticated. Finally, they have more sophisticated taste. They're punishing bad films, which they've been doing to, to local films uh, this year. Uh, and now they're punishing Hollywood for the same problem. So... It's clear that China is no longer Hollywood's ATM. Besides, you know, China, China, uh, Hollywood's only been able to get 25% of that China money anyway, despite all the all the publicity about how China is great box office, whatever. They only get they only give you 25% of the money. Um, so that's why they needed to do super well to help recruit some of that money. But yeah, I mean, when even word of mouth is bad in China, you know, you're in a real trouble, I think. And, and I think it's just another sign that you guys, you know, I think, I don't even want a creative team change because I just want this franchise to be over. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to, of course, to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jaboer of Snouser Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. And we also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook over at East S. West S, where we all love talking about things like Terrace House and Sense8. <laughs> so please check us out there. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? You can, uh, well, when I come back, you can uh, read my website, Asia in Cinema. Uh, that's asiaincinema.com. Asia in Cinema, not Asia Cinema, not Asian Cinema. It's Asia in Cinema. Uh, you can follow the Facebook page and also the Twitter account. Um, again, just search face, uh, Asian in Cinema, and you should be able to find it. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. I may tweet once in a while when I'm in Taipei. Um, and uh, you can read my work on Discovery Magazine uh, and Cathay Dragon's uh, Silk Road Magazine. Um, and you can read uh, some of the content online on um, uh, Discovery. Sorry, Discovery or cathaypacific.com slash discovery it's a new month so july uh i'm i wrote about in this corner of the world the japanese animated film for world film club our film critic maggie lee wrote about kong skull island and the lost city of z oh wait sorry no maggie didn't write actually i wrote it sorry i took over the column this month so july issue i wrote about kong island and kong skull island and the lost city of z um yeah uh so please read those um and what else oh you can email me at uh um what is my email address kevin at asia in cinema.com there you go all right please do uh check him out and also check out our friends over at podcast on fire um we'll be guesting on a couple of forthcoming episodes uh, the melodrama series i think uh kenneth has mentioned is going to be dropping in the not too near not too distant future so you can check that out our next show episode 232 uh, what do you think you'll be talking about for uh, East Screen? Is it going to be the zombology thing? Well, I did the subtitles for zombieology, so it's not probably not good for me to talk about it. Mm. Um, hopefully, let's see what I can talk about. Um, 
perhaps the new Enhui film, uh, Our Time Will Come. Um, if not, I can try and pick perhaps uh, a Taiwanese film called The Receptionist, which I plan to watch. Or we can still talk about 77 Heartbreaks, Right. Um, I think. So there's still some films to catch. Uh, and what do we do for West Screen? Well, uh, Spider-Man, got Spider-Man, Spidey. Homecoming on the on the horizon. You know, we we are if it if the schedule is a bit weird right now, it's because we are an episode down. We took a break last week, and uh, I've actually seen Despicable Me three. We were going to do that, but I think we, we're going to be doing Spider-Man for the coming episode. Um, you know, Despicable Me three was fine. It's uh, trending at I think sixty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I fell asleep during it. Um, my wife thought it was really boring. But our little one liked it. Um, she was, you know, she liked it, and she likes seeing the minions on screen. So the kids around us seem to be having fun, but the jokes really fell flat for uh, the adults. And um, the only other film I've fallen asleep in, as you will remember, was Cold War II. So, <laughs> you know, and I love animation, so that's that's kind of saying something. So if you've got little ones, I think they'll be fine with it. Uh, it wasn't there; the violence wasn't too over the top or anything. It was very comedic and. And all that was good, um, but we probably won't be getting to a full review of that. We're going to jump over to the third incarnation of Spider-Man, um, Spider-Man Homecoming. So we're looking forward to talk about that. Are you getting that this week, or have you guys already gotten that release? We're getting that this week, and uh, because uh, Taiwan has, Taipei has really huge cinemas with like 900 seats, and uh, I might try and catch it there, yeah. All right, excellent. All of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the Screen Watch Screen Podcast saying, transform and roll out of the cinema. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody.